electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market insight and analysis. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC, Squawk on the Street. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Courtney Reagan, Mike Santoli at the New York Stock Exchange. Jim and David have the morning off. The wait is almost over. Powell's speech at Jackson Hole just over an hour away. Futures pretty supportive here after the Bulls dropped the ball yesterday. The Dow's worst performance since March. A lot of earnings sneaking under the gate before the weekend as well. Our roadmap begins with Powell's inflation pitch, though. Investors closely watching the rate policy tea leaves at Jackson Hole. Plus, retail's reckoning. Nordstrom saying theft is at historic highs and Gap also warning of an uncertain consumer. And we'll bring you Sarah's rare interview with the CEOs of Simon Property Group, Authentic Brands, and their new partner, the executive chair of Sheehan. Let's begin, though, with the Fed chair's remarks scheduled to be delivered in the next hour. Steve Leisman is in Jackson Hole. has been busy all morning long and has a preview. Hey, Steve. Hey, Carl. Yeah, you know, despite the five percentage point decline in inflation since the Fed last gathered here in the mountains, Fed Chair Jay Powell not expected to deliver a victory speech here in Jackson Hole. Uh, while Powell may acknowledge the progress and even hold out the possibility of a soft landing for the U.S. economy, he'll retain his flexibility, I think, to raise rates or hold them at a high level until there's convincing evidence, is the phrase they've used. Inflation is headed to the 2% target. Ian Shepardson from Pantheon Economics, he writes, we see no reason to think that Mr. Powell is ready now to give up optionality, given the tendency of inflation in the past couple of years to disappoint after appearing to improve. Now, Mark, Markets have already kind of embraced this. September, uh, probability of a rate hike trading 20%. But there is November at the even odds line at 50%. That's up from yesterday after Harker's remarks and up over the past couple of weeks. The other change, markets have backed way off expectations for cuts in 2024, removing almost 65 basis points of rate cuts since mid-July. Still, though, looking for those cuts. It's useful to note. The frame of the debate on the Fed now is between hawks who want to hike again and doves who don't want to cut now, but just don't want to hike. Like Philly Fed President Patrick Harker, who you know we spoke with yesterday. Steve, uh, that's absolutely the case. Nobody is explicitly talking about cutting. But given the fact that the address is going to be play out for a while uh, and that should bring inflation down. Mike, so, so Powell, I think, could acknowledge some of the risks to the economy from tightening bank credit and the recent surge in rates. But the tone at best for markets will be balanced, not dovish. And the inflation victory dance, guys, if there's going to be one, going to have to wait till next year here. Yeah, for sure. And Steve, of course, I mean, Fed chair will typically like to preserve flexibility and stay data dependent if it makes sense. And it's certainly true that there's no rush to, to sort of start to foretell of rate cuts to come next year. But they also do have on paper, you know, this idea that the normal level of of short term interest rates is way below where we are right now. And presumably, as the cycle moves on, they're going to trend in that direction. Do you think any of that discussion is going to be in the air? 
I don't think so. I tried to broach that yesterday with, uh, um, with Harker on this idea of cuts. And they'll tell you, yeah, cuts could come next year if inflation comes down. And that's not really an easing of financial conditions, as you know, Mike, because the Fed likes to think in terms of real interest rates or the inflation-adjusted interest rate. And you might just get a little bit of that uh, next year. Uh, and, and, and again, the hawks and the doves will differ over how much to cut, but also when to start cutting and how much evidence they need. I think you're going to need several months, Mike, of really good PCE and CPI inflation numbers in order for the Fed to start talking seriously about that. I think today it's not, you know, just because it's Jackson Hole, uh, I think the, the, the Fed chair delivers a thoughtful speech, but I don't think he has to decide. And I keep hearing that from other folks, which is, look, we got September and then we got October data. We don't have a meeting till November. And so they're not going to make a decision before they have to because we're not in a forward guidance mode here, Carl. Yeah, uh, well, we'll get a little more of that diet of data starting next week with PCE on, uh, I think it's Thursday, Steve. We'll be coming to you a lot uh, this morning. Uh, Steve Leesman with that awesome live shot in Jackson Hole. <laughs> Fed chair speech this morning does come after the Dow's worst session since March. The S&P and NASDAQ posted their weakest one-day performance since August 2nd. A lot of uh, hand-wringing about yesterday, Court, whether it was some of the retail blow-ups or certainly NVIDIA's inability to hold what was a almost 7% gain at the open. Yeah, that was pretty interesting. I, I thought that we, that we lost steam and NVIDIA, and I wonder if that just opens up some more questions as to as to broader tech, what tech can do for this rally, if it can continue with these magnificent seven holding on to the weight that it's been able to hold. And I think the consumer is just so interesting right now. Obviously, the retail sales numbers were stronger than expected at the last read, but then kind of some mixed signals from a lot of these retailers, where the quarter was actually fairly decent for many of them, but so much cautious tone looking to the back half of the year sort of just rise, raising the question of, of how resilient is the consumer right now? Yeah, and I think that gets to why uh, investors in general are uncomfortable or apprehensive about making a declaration that the current hot streak we have in GDP growth, it seems right now, based on the third quarter tracking numbers, is something that we can actually rely on as being durable. So if, if the bond yields were going up to 15-year highs on the long end of the Treasury curve because Absolutely. The one reason was we have a strong economy and it's going to stay strong and therefore the Fed can kind of sit back. I think we'd be able to absorb it better. But the fact that Japanese 10 year yields have doubled in two months uh, and you have this sense that it might be a a kind of front loading of economic activity. There's a little bit of a burst of of the consumer strength here when you've got real wages uh, turning positive in recent months. But how much life is there in that? Uh, So fast and slow, sprint and stumble has been my argument for what is on investors minds about this current environment. And therefore, is the Fed going to seem too tight if all of a sudden we decelerate uh, into early next year uh, or something like that? That being said, I think I look at this, the market mechanics, and it seems like this pullback just had unfinished business. You know, Carl, you know, I've been talking about it It was like the minimally acceptable pullback, 5% for five minutes. Not enough this time after a 20% run, it seems. Um, So you're starting to get a little more of the technical oversold readings and sentiment has cooled from, from, uh, from a pretty rolling boil. That that might not be enough uh, in the immediate moment. But once we clear through Powell, I think the question is, do rates break out higher from here? And do we have to worry about that? Or is it going to be a little bit of, hey, rates went to the top end of the range. Oil went to the top end of the range, just pulled back. The dollar is not going to go nuts. 
can we live with that that environment? Yeah, it's been an interesting split uh, of decisions or at least views. I'm thinking of like Katie Huberty, for example, and Morgan Stanley, yeah. who still thinks we need to fill the gap from NVIDIA's last guide exactly. in May, which would uh, take you no. back maybe at least another 5% on the S&P. I think that that's what the chart is at least hinting at the possibility of. So that was late May. That's the thing that got the S&P above 4,200. Remember how in the first half of the year everyone was like, well, 4,200 is the obvious ceiling for this market. That's the range. Look at the chart. And then we burst above it in part because in late May, NVIDIA got us there. So, I mean, would that be a big deal to go from 46 to 42? Not really. It'd be kind of routine, but it would be scary along yeah. the way. On the other hand, uh, today, uh, Savita Subramanian at B of A, who's been pretty constructive, says, look, there is a split between hedge fund positioning and our fund manager survey. And she still says, stay long beta, stay long cyclicals until either you see the weighting shift or macro deteriorates to the point where it's obvious to everybody. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. She says now is the time for offense, not for defense. Uh, uh, which is, you know, I, I, I like I like her positivity and the bullish uh, slant that she's, she's really taking there. Around. She's coming yes. around this year, wouldn't you say? I would. And I would also point out that she is a quant. And so her positivity is not necessarily a pose or a subjective call as much as it is. Look, we see an earnings trough. The earnings estimates have not given way. They're actually still pointed higher. Earnings estimates on a 12-month forward basis for the S&P are higher now than when the market you know, was at its peak. So therefore, it's become less expensive. And cyclicals has been the call for a while. I do think you can actually be kind of neutral on the S&P uh, or even think that it has more to go on the downside and say cyclicals look like they're well positioned here because they're not the predominant mover of the market cap, uh, you know, the, the big blocks of market cap within the index. The other thing that's interesting out of B of A, the B of A sort of has a... Um, split personality yeah, yeah. in some sense. But Mike Hartnett, who's been fairly bearish, today says, look at central bank liquidity, look at Fed liquidity and the NASDAQ. Put them together. You see the split lately. Yeah. Uh, the NASDAQ wants new highs where liquidity has suffered. He actually compares it to something we talk a lot about in retail, and that is excess savings on the consumer level. Absolutely. He thinks absolutely. it's basically the excess savings for, for the market. Yeah, and that is interesting. And of course, the idea of savings, is it excess or is it waning? I mean, it just feels... Again, it feels like you could you could look at the data and decide, do you want to look at this as glass half full or glass half empty when we're looking at the savings rate? Because I can see an argument for both sides there um, as well when it comes to the savings rate. So interesting stuff and obviously paying so much attention to what's going on in the NASDAQ with these magnificent seven stocks and otherwise. And the NVIDIA action this week, of course, uh, caught everybody's attention. I and mean, a headline that continues. My, like, my bias is to completely downplay any causal effect of ah. Fed balance. No, not the... Not the not the excess savings, but okay. of central bank balance sheets as somehow this direct channel into speculative or, uh, or expensive growth stocks. You look at that chart. First of all, the, the NASDAQ went from 8,000 to 10,000 when central bank liquidity was like this in 2019. OK, so what's what's the point of the relationship? And then if it breaks right here, you don't start to say, hey, maybe that's not a causal relationship. You say the NASDAQ's wrong. Right. right. So <laughs> that's that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But look, they both move in the same direction for long periods of time when you sync up the Y axis in just the perfect way to make the lines overlap. And you have magic. Yeah. The other I thought the other uh, interesting uh, tidbit this week was Tom Lee looking at the last decade, years in which stocks were down ahead of Jackson Hole. Mm. And then the week after six yeah. to seven times, they did rise after Jackson Hole. Last year was the exception because we all know the pain speech. Oh, yes, that's right. Um, mm -hmm. And I just wonder, I, I sometimes wonder whether or not 
Powell, if he's if he were asked today, yeah. is this the kind of pain you would have envisioned a year later? S and P up four percent. S and P up four percent, although it did, you know, have a, a, a massive gut check into October. Um, you have had the existing home market basically screech to a halt. I mean, there's things have happened. Yeah. Yes, things have happened. It's it's taken the economy uh, a little bit off the boil, and I think that's fine. Uh, what I do remember too, though, is we keep alternating between Jackson Hole speeches that are absolutely crucial and ones that we can just ignore. I remember Bernanke at Jackson Hole kind of articulated QA and it was this big kind of signature moment. Central banking has changed forever. And then every year after that, we're like, it's going to be big. It's going to be big. And it was a little bit of a shrug. We'll see. We'll we'll, we'll know a lot more in about uh, 50 minutes. Still to come this morning, a new fast fashion retail partnership. Sarah Eisen's rare interview with the CEOs of Simon Property, Authentic Brands, and the executive chair of Shein. Talk a lot about what that means for e-commerce, retail, and, of course, commercial real estate. As we're on Powell Watch this morning, don't go anywhere. A lot more Squawk in the Street straight ahead. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. As we mentioned yesterday, the world's most valuable private e-commerce company, Shein, entering a partnership with Forever 21 and its operator, Spark Group. Our Sarah Eisen spoke exclusively with Authentic Brand CEO Jamie Salter, Simon Property CEO David Simon, and Shein's executive chairman, Donald Tang, last night. Among the topics they discussed, Shein's rising influence in the fashion marketplace. Take a listen. I'm always looking at who's successful in the marketplace, and I was noticing that there was this company called Shein, S-H-E-I-N, and I was looking at data and seeing that they were just performing better and better and they were taking more market share um, from really the fast fashion, you know, retailers. What's interesting is they have 150 million customers. Spark actually has 200 million customers, uh, different customers, uh, customers that actually come into the stores and physically shop and of course you know some of those customers are, are also online because spark you know has seven brands in its portfolio today um, you know whether it's forever 21 or Burks brothers or Reebok um, lucky uh, Eddie Bauer uh, Aero pastel so I think what's so interesting you know about sort of their customers and our customers there will be overlap there there'll be their customers that want to buy other brands and not just the Shein brand, you know, they'll want to buy Forever 21. So, But does we, Shein clothing get sold in now Forever 21? So we will be testing definitely some shop and shops um, in the Forever 21 stores. And, you know, obviously we have nice landlords <laughs> that will allow us to do that. 
and we will test those shop and shops. And our belief, um, based on the pop-ups that Sheen has done in the past, that that will be incredibly exciting uh, for the Forever 21 customer. And, you know, it will obviously drive an enormous amount of traffic, you know, uh, into the malls, which is good from a Simon point of view, but it's also very good from Forever 21 point of view. Return to store. That's something that, you know, we, we've studied sort of a little bit of what Kohl's has been doing with, with Amazon with return to store. So that is something that we've also discussed. Shein Returns can yes. come back to so Shein returns the stores at the Simon Malls. To mm-hmm. the Forever 21 stores, getting that credit. And then, you know, obviously, hopefully they will spend that credit in the Shein Shop and Shop or in the Forever 21 uh, store. Uh, yeah, but it's, I think it's our goal to, you know, to use both of our distribution networks back and forth. So Shein comes on to our platform, which is essentially mostly physical environment, right? So shop and shop in the Forever 21 store. I've happened to see a couple of pop-ups that um, that um, Sheehan's done, and one in Riyadh just recently in June, and it was incredible. There was a line out, and then they did a pop-up in Indianapolis. I think that was just to seal the deal, so they wanted to show me what the line was outside <laughs> my hometown. but. Um, and the line for the consumers to, to, to come into the, you know, then this was maybe a week, you know, your stores are like for a week or two or whatever, but the line to get into that was great. So I think introducing Shein in a broader, more physical way will be beneficial for Shein. At the same time, we can put Forever 21 on their marketplace uh, and expose all of the great stuff and all the all the product that F21 has um, on, the, on the Shein marketplace will and expose it to the 150 million consumers. So that will be what we want to learn from each other, and, um, but we expect it to accelerate the growth of both companies because we can, we, can, we can use both of our distribution networks. Yeah, for the first time you get physical retail exposure, right? Forever 21 has more than 400 stores in the U.S. How, how much of that is part of the, the vision and the growth plan for Shein? Well, we're always looking at customers, the consumer first. You know, whatever consumer want, that we'll, we'll try to give it to them. You know, we want to go deeper, go wider and broader. We'll have much more from Sarah's interview in the 11 a.m. hour. I mean, really interesting stuff. Obviously, very rare to hear from David Simon um, in any format, but along with two other CEOs for this deal. And I think there's a little bit for everyone to like when it comes to those three partners. Obviously, Sarah drove home the point with the executives that Sheehan gets this physical exposure, potentially in the form of shop and shops or otherwise, with Forever 21 in the United States, which is a very, very key market for them. We always talk about Sheehan as a Chinese company, but I think it way they would they almost want to shudder at that notion these days they actually make zero revenue in china they do have manufacturing there they were started there Uh, they've moved their headquarters to singapore there's obviously been rumors of an ipo here in the united states and i think they just want to prove frankly uh to lawmakers to regulators that they are a safe bet that they are are sort of a good player in u.s commerce and so i think that's what Shein gets out of this deal um potentially more than actually the access to the u.s 
U.S. consumer in a physical store. And then I think Forever 21 can learn from them when it comes to making their fashion even faster and even less expensive. They, she and um, manufactures in small batches, so they use on-demand search trends in a way to figure out what someone's searching for, what they want. She and then manufactures that in a small batch. It, they do so in, in order to eliminate waste and also to test uh, what will work and what won't. And I think that's something that Forever 21 would love to learn from. And then obviously they both sort of get a stake in each other with this partnership yeah. deal. I, I think it's really interesting. I'm thinking of the one of the Dollar Tree or Dollar General calls this week that argued yep. in a when the consumer is suppressed and, and you know stressed that a lot of them pay cash yes. in, in, in a physical location. It's Because membership fees are expensive, too. Yes, absolutely. I think that that is something that we need to watch really, really carefully. And obviously, we've seen credit card delinquencies tick up at both Macy's and Nordstrom's comments from their executives this week, too. So perhaps cash is a little bit uh, more of a strain for some consumers. Yeah, we're going to handle some of the retail yeah. earnings that uh, we got last night. Courtney's already all over those. We'll tune in for more of Sarah's interview today at 11 a.m. Eastern time. And of course, still to come, the Fed chair's speech at Jackson Hole. We'll bring you live coverage in the next hour. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Retail wrapping up a wild week on the earnings front. Uh, Gap posting some mixed results last night. Weaker sales forecast as consumers pull back. Meantime, there is Nordstrom moving lower despite this quarterly beat, saying it continues to see a cautious consumer as well as losses related to theft. This is CEO Eric Nordstrom on the call last night. Losses from theft are at, uh, at historical highs. Uh, and I'd say we, we find it unacceptable and uh, needs to be addressed. That being said, while it's unacceptable, it is within our plans. Uh, we have not seen uh, continuing rising of shrinkage that has exceeded uh, what we've planned. So uh, it's in line with, with how we laid out this year, but um, you know, the drag on earnings, just, just from a, a financial performance, uh, that needs to come down. Interesting. Nice chart circulated this week, Court, looking at what shrink really is. Yes. About a third of it is actual external theft. The rest is either internal or just weak process. Absolutely. And, I, you know, I think so much of shrink has been lumped into the idea of theft. It's not necessarily synonymous. Theft is part of shrink, but not all shrink is theft. And so I think that's important to remember. I remember years ago, for instance, when uh, some of the televisions uh, th that were being manufactured were much, much thinner than they previous had been. And Best Buy saw so much breakage happening just in the way that when they were unpacking them, they had to sort of learn how to handle that. And that increased their shrink. And that had 
nothing to do with theft. But that's just an example of sort of another another way. Yeah, that, we that we that saw the guys in the loading it. bay in Forty Year Old Virgin. I mean, they were just throwing that stuff around. That's right. So, yeah. That's right. They got to learn to yeah. handle that with a little bit more delicate touch. Um, but I do think that that's interesting, and we've seen those smash and grab videos. We just showed that at Nordstrom. Obviously, um, that is concerning. I, I'm, I am, for one, just sort of hoping that law enforcement is starting to pay attention to some of this because I don't believe that any one retailer can solve it on their own. I think there have been progress that's been made. Lowe's, for instance, uh, CEO Marvin Ellison told me this week that while shrink has been higher because of theft at home improvement retailers like Lowe's, they've spent a lot of time trying to improve the way that they do things, enhance security measures, and at least they saw shrink flat this quarter didn't go away, but it did not go back up. He's not going to tell us all the details of what they did. You don't want to tip your hand entirely to the bad guys. But I know that there is a lot of question. How much of this is really pressuring retail? I understand those questions. But I also think as consumers, it's hard for us to ignore when you go shopping the different measures that you've seen. We'll dive into retail a bit more in a second. Let's get the opening bell. And the CNBC is on exchange with the big board. It's the Massapequa International Little League 12U softball team celebrating its Little League Softball World Series championship. I don't know if you watch any of the coverage. Absolutely Great. incredible. I saw a little bit watch. of it. It was really yes. cool. I'm uh, so happy. And the NASDAQ uh, Pixie Dust Technology celebrating its recent IPO. Decent breadth here at the Open. Long Islanders can play ball. I'll just say that. That's all I'm gonna say. Which exit, Mike? Which exit? Uh, yeah, you get, you're getting around the mid 40s there for, uh, for Massapequa. Um, what I was going to mention, though, with retail yes. is I, perhaps one of the reasons that Shrink is getting so much attention for some of the retailers is there's no room for error in mm. terms of the mature retailers sure. that are struggling with sales declines. So if you talk about Nordstrom, I look at Nordstrom Gap. Kohl's, the broadline kind of apparel-centric retailers, they all trade at like 0.2 times sales, mm-hmm. right? So that's the valuation the market is giving them. In the five years before the pandemic, it was more than double that valuation, that, that ratio. And it just basically says, the market has said, this is kind of some semi-permanent decline, at least in market share, at least in terms of centrality. Where does the market want to go? The kind of category winners like TJX and Ross, uh, even things like Ulta and, and Tractor Supply, where it seems like they haven't tried to be everything to everybody for 30 years and sure. they're struggling to, to get there. I, I think it was interesting hearing from Richard Dixon on the Gap Call last night, who is the new CEO, just two days in, though, yeah. of course, so he's not going to tell us too much about his strategy, but he has been on the board since November. I think he has a good idea what the problems are. He came from Mattel, obviously, COO, but he also was a co-executive producer of the Barbie movie. And so I I think that is probably why Gap did not name him as the CEO until they did, because he had to see that through to the box office. Mm. So he's been on the board since November. It's possible he had been identified for some time as the new CEO, but he had to see that that movie through. And, you know, I've talked to people that know him and they say, look, he's got a healthy risk curve, but he's also a visionary. He's a really good leader. Um, He's competitive. He likes to play tennis, uh, for example. He, He builds a good team around him. He was brought into the Jones Apparel group to sort of shake things up. He was then brought into Mattel to do similar thing and reinvigorate the Barbie brand, which I do believe that he did. So obviously Gap is sold off precipitously in the last several years. They had a lot of problems through the pandemic. Uh, They did not handle the supply chain well. They flew in merchandise, which was very expensive to do. And unfortunately, then once it got here, nobody wanted to buy that merchandise. So there's a lot to fix here. Um, but, But I'm starting to wonder what the analysts are going to start evaluating when it comes to him and his ability to affect change there. 
uh, Old Navy down eight, uh, no, Banana down eight, Old Navy down six. Sure. Uh, and Barbie, by the way, the now the highest grossing film of the year and in the history of Warner Brothers, which kind is of amazing. something yeah. else. Uh, I was I just going to say, though, with Gap, uh, I mean, as a, as a kind of, uh, you know, non-expert in the area, isn't Abercrombie doing well selling retro 90s type fashion? Shouldn't Gap be like exactly there? Totally. They might still have some of the stuff sitting I, around. I know, right? No, that, that, is, a, that is such a... Um, that's such a good point. I mean, Abercrombie is selling some retro 90s fashion, although not necessarily retro to itself, if that makes right. any sense. Because exactly. yeah. they're not selling, you know, those big logo tees, for sure. instance, but but the styles, absolutely. And I think that there is some opportunity there. Dixon, again, on the call said, look, turnaround of this kind takes some time. Sort of, it seemed like a plea to investors, be patient with me. Um, but, you know, gap trading under 10. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, by the way, ANF uh, gets upgraded today over right. Morgan Stanley, equal weight, 51. Uh, credible turnaround, Hollister inflecting, but healthy skepticism. And so they, they basically keep it at an inline. Yes, absolutely. And, and when we had uh, Fran Horowitz, the CEO, on the 11 a.m. hour, she, when we asked her pointedly about shrinks, said that they're not really seeing it, which I find uh, very interesting. Um, potentially that has to do with the real estate of the stores located in mall. I'm not totally sure, mm. um, but they're not seeing it like other retailers are. The other issue that Nordstrom brought up last night is delinquencies. Yes. Uh, echoing what Macy's told us earlier in the week, uh, now above pre-COVID levels, could mean higher credit losses in the second half of the fiscal year and next year, too. Yeah, I think that obviously is concerning beyond just what it means to the business and, and their credit card uh, revenues. But, but what's interesting is that Kohl's didn't really point that out, and they have a pretty decent credit card business. And you know, consumer may be more similar to, to Macy's than to Nordstrom, but I, I do find that concerning. I also think with Nordstrom, the uh, the Nordstrom rack sales did did get better, but but they're still lower, and that's lagging, obviously and lagging Ross and lagging, lagging TJX exactly. And yes, they're off price, and I know this sounds silly, but I don't know if the online component of rack makes a big difference from a fundamental standpoint because you can shop NordstromRack.com fairly extensive product. You cannot do that with TJX and with Ross stores. They have a small online presence, but not like that. I think the customers really like to go into the stores, and we know that generally it is more efficient uh, from a cost perspective for a retailer to sell you something from a store than from a website. And about a third, a little more than a third of Nordstrom's total sales do come online. I, I don't know how that plays into the rack exactly, but a curious point. We're just going to mention we have uh, the S&P up half a percent at the start, and NVIDIA is down 1.4 percent. So it's continuing what was that uh, downside intraday reversal yesterday. Uh, the stock peaked uh, around 502 and change yesterday, uh, closed uh, just about, uh, you know, around 470, and now it's down 1.5 percent from this. So not a major move. It's not cutting into too much of that game, but it shows you uh, you've maybe exhausted the near-term demand for this one particular story, even as the company delivered on, uh, on, on the wildest hopes and dreams. That said, uh, it's not really, just, just as it didn't really have uh, a broad uh, coattails yesterday on the upside, the rest of the, uh, the NASDAQ 100 up by four-tenths of one percent. Uh, Microsoft uh, is a winner of three-quarters of a percent out of the gate. Oppenheimer uh, was out with some positive comments on Microsoft this morning, essentially just saying we're early in the cloud story as it, as it, as it becomes uh, perhaps the operating system for AI, which, of course, is, is the aspiration. We'll see if it gets there. Yeah, I love this Goldman note this morning off, off the desk. I was pinged more times yeah. than any other trading day in my 20-year career yesterday with the same question. Why did the most important stock in the world, NVIDIA, absolutely crush earnings and close up only 10 bips? My reply, uh, dip buyers are already very full. And that 
sort of points to the positioning that we've been This is Rubner, yeah. right? And he's been uh, on this idea that structurally, or at least mechanically right now, the way the big money, the systematic traders are set up is uh, as a bias to sell, especially in dealers' bias to sell into uh, index declines. It's just kind of the way the exposures have been set up coming into August. The fact that you did have people kind of gorge on equity risk coming in. Um, and then there's a lot of the options related uh, machinations, which he believes is causing a lot of uh, this sort of leaning toward the sell side. I don't know if that's necessarily something that you have to say, well, we extrapolate that out from here through September because that's going to be the market we have. It's still a two-way market to a fair degree. We're still sitting on just a barely a 5% decline at the open uh, or actually at yesterday's close from an intraday basis on the S&P. Uh, we'll see. Volatility in general is not really doing much. It's under 17 on the VIX. Mm. And some people have attributed that to also to some of the intraday option stuff. But uh, what Rubner has basically been saying is, in part, uh, these these uh, kinds of funds that take their cue from how volatile are stocks and bonds, and that tells me how much risk I should be taking, they're now net sellers because at least we have seen an uptick in the jumpiness uh, of both markets. We'll see. Uh, uh, almost every Dow component is higher. Uh, the only negative one is UNH, and not by much. Uh, that would include Disney, which, of course, uh, nine-year closing low yesterday. Uh, you might have seen some of the headlines from the information that Amazon's in talks uh, to be part of an ESPN partnership uh, direct-to-consumer offer that could cost between 25 or 20 to $35 a month, uh, would expand distribution, obviously, maybe even take a minority stake. Uh, Nike, a court, might yeah. actually... Post a gain, at least at these current levels, Ooh. first time in ele after 11 straight losses. Yeah, that has been really interesting action there. And, and you know, I, I find it really interesting when we heard from the retailers that sell Nike in these wholesale partnerships. And they actually called out Nike as one of their stronger sellers in the quarter, uh, including Dick's Sporting Goods, Kohl's. Macy's is getting its Nike product back. But that did not do much to turn around Nike. J.P. Morgan's Matt Boss points out that Nike has told them, well, those relationships while important, don't really change the trajectory of our top line assumptions. And I think the downward pressure is more about what's going on in China. That's a really important market for Nike. And obviously those questions still loom about if it can recapture some of those growth prospects. Um, and innovation has been in question. Does Nike have anything cool when all these other athletic companies are sort of propping up? I mean, On is, is very hot and Viore as athleisure wear. And so I think there's some concerns there. Uh, we'll see if we can break that trend, though, as you point out, Carl, it's up three quarters of a percent. Yeah. Mike's, you got I mean, there's also the, the, the idea that, you know, Foot Locker is all this inventory they're going to have to liquidate. And just That's in right. general, the, that the market is just not necessarily set up for great pricing and, you know, for Nike to capitalize on all that, at least that in the is. short term. Courtney yeah. brings up China. Uh, a lot of discussion today about moves they made there overnight mm. to ease some home purchasing rules, make it easy to buy back stock, make it easy to trade domestic stocks by lowering some of the stamp duties there, rallied, uh, Shanghai rallied for, I think, was it 10, 15 minutes yeah. <laughs> uh, before losing it all? Exactly. It's, it's really been uh, kind of a busted market just in terms of trend. I mean, I think it's almost to the point where, where people are saying, is it finally getting hated and unloved and untrusted enough again where you might want to take a shot? But market clearly is calling out for something policy-wise, mm. you know, some big you know, persuasive stimulus type move or something that regenerates uh, some enthusiasm for either investing or uh, or housing speculation. But it just doesn't seem like it's getting traction. So it's a different type of, uh, of market. 
Uh, it's interesting. I mean, as Jay, as Jay Powell gets ready to talk, Jackson Hole, I doubt he's going to discuss the global picture that much. But there is a case to be made that he can kind of temper any hawkish sentiments he has about rates have to stay higher for longer by saying, look, the long end of the Treasury curve is doing some work for us. It's restraining uh, the, um, you know, the housing market and we have some delinquencies upticking. Also, China is no longer really a net contributor to global growth. It's almost doing some of our work for us. It's got some deflation there. Um, you know, we'll see if, uh, how that comes into the mix. I do think it's interesting that the U.S. Uh, is, is sort of turned, it's been a turnabout where we're growing at 6%. China, China's economy and economic growth as a percentage of U.S. growth is actually on the decline now. So, and to the, to that point, I mean, the the um, theme of the Jackson Hole Summit is the structural changes in the economy. Yeah. And what do you think Powell may say to that end if China is not included in this sort of decoupling that we're going through? It appears the idea of um, deglobalization and reindustrialization. Maybe that's going to be a big part of it. I also think that they're going to be very focused on um, demographics and the fact that we have a structurally tight labor market. We have three and a half percent unemployment. Does that directly feed into inflation the way we thought it did before? Is that going to mean inflation stickier or has upside spikes from time to time? So some of that probably, at least in theory, could be on the menu. Uh, speaking of which, as we go to break, let's keep a close eye on the bond market with the Dow up 150 or so. Uh, not a lot of data today, although we will get rig count at 1 o'clock, which has been down 9 to 10 weeks. But for the time being on the 10-year, just south of 4 and a quarter, and the Fed chair just about 25 minutes away. Don't go anywhere. As we await Fed Chair Powell's speech at Jackson Hole, here's a look at this week's top performers on the S&P 500. See Moderna up more than 10% leading the way. Palo Alto Networks as well. NVIDIA and Tesla neck and neck right below almost 9% gains. And Hasbro has had a good week as well. Tonight on CNBC, Josh Brown and I will be back for another special edition of Taking Stock. Be sure to tune in at 6 p.m. Eastern time. We'll kind of kick around the big uh, stories of the week, tell you what matters and what's not a big deal for next week as well. Squawk on the street. I'll be right back. At this point, I see us staying steady uh, throughout the rest of this year. Then we'll see how the data evolve. If we see inflation coming down quicker than we expect. And again, this is what I'm hearing from the soft data I'm getting from my contacts. Uh-huh. Then we might cut sooner rather than later. But I think we have to let that play out. Sooner being the first half of the year? Or? We'll see. I mean, I, I can't predict that right now. Philly Fed President Patrick Harker, Harker yesterday, as we are just moments away now from the Fed Chair's pal uh, speech at Jackson Hole. Former Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan joins us this morning to talk about what we might hear later on this morning. Robert, it's great to have you. Uh, I, I, I imagine here. you don't expect the chair to be nearly as declarative as, uh, as Harker was yesterday. No, no. I think he's going to try to be neutral, uh, say progress is made, but the job's not done. And, and keep his options open, be agnostic about what they're going to do next. And uh, there's a bunch of cross currents that they're going to create a lot of debate through the fall. Uh, manufacturing's weak, anything interest sensitive is weak. It's hard for a small business to get a loan right now. China's weak, as you guys mentioned. However, you've got substantial government spending, Inflation Reduction Act, Infrastructure Act, unspent ARPA money, services are resilient. Uh, and so these cross currents are going to have to sort through through the fall. And the other thing that's going on, uh, which I think you also mentioned earlier, is the back end of the curve rates are backing up. That's a tightening away from the Fed. And so uh, if I were at the Fed, I'd want to observe that carefully and see how that plays out, because it may have further to go. 
And that could be a more significant tightening than anything the Fed might do. Robert, if the Fed has such a wide range right now that it's looking at for a neutral rate, how can they really be sure that they're either restrictive enough or not too restrictive to get to their long-term goals? So it's a central question I know that they're, that they're wrestling with and I, I, I would be wrestling with. The, the tricky part is without, again, this sizable project spending by the government or government-enabled project spending on manufacturing and infrastructure, I would think the neutral rate uh, organically is something like a half a percent or three quarters of a percent in the economy. The thing that's tricky is if that's true, uh, then why is the economy so strong? But I think there's an X factor, which is government spending, which is sort of confusing what, how much of the neutral rate is organic and how much of it is artificial based on this government spending. I, I, that's why I would be, I would really make sure we had, I had a good grip on what the forward calendar is for this project spending from Inflation Reduction Act, Infrastructure Act, and so on, because I think it may make it look like the neutral rate's a little higher than it actually is. Uh, Robert, that being the case, and also the fact that Chair Powell has acknowledged that in all likelihood the Fed will at some point be cutting rates before inflation is all the way back to its target. Um, what do you think he's going to be able to say about just how the Fed is going to be making its decisions? What is its reaction function to incoming uh, numbers in terms of inflation? And how are they perceiving the risk that perhaps that uh, over tightening is a possibility? So. Potentially today, but certainly over the next few weeks, you're going to hear more about this subject that Courtney just asked about, of the, of the, the, the real neutral rate and the difference between the nominal Fed funds rate and the real Fed funds rate. And the point is, if they keep rates where they are, for example, for the next number of months, but inflation weakens a little bit, uh, that will actually mean that the, 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 the real rate of interest has actually gone up. And so they may feel if inflation's improving that they have latitude to cut a little bit and still be as, restri as restrictive. That'll be the kind of thing you're going to hear a lot of wrestling with over the next few months. Robert, I've seen some work um, looking at the relationship between CPI and PCE looking at what healthcare is doing versus what shelter might do and arguing that that relationship could flip. And I wonder, are we going to be paying attention to one metric more than the other in the quarters ahead? I think sitting at the Fed, I'd be looking at everything. You look at all these metrics. And I'm also very conscious of some of these structural drivers, which is the subject of this conference. Workforce growth is decelerating due to aging. I, we don't have enough workers and you're seeing that in wages. We're also gone from globalization to deglobalization, and we're not using trade as strategically. That'll show up in the numbers, and the, and the big one is the energy transition, which is gonna cost trillions globally and is very expensive. And so it, what, keep your eye for the next number of months, for example, on energy, because I still think we're three or four years away from peak energy demand globally for fossil fuels. And the energy transaction is going to take a, a longer time than maybe some people think. And you may see that feed through and make inflation stickier. Yeah. Uh, Goldman did some work on that this week, looking at if we just say we get uh, oil to 100, uh, they argue it could add maybe a tenth or two 
uh, to headline. It's a district, obviously, you obviously know well. I wonder how, how much of a threat you think that does pose to headline. I think we should be prepared that uh, you could get more spikes in uh, in oil prices. Uh, and and I would, based on everything I see and talking to contacts, we're undersupplied relative to demand globally, so we're vulnerable to spikes. The one other structural uh, issue that I'd point out, which is sort of stating the obvious, we're a lot more leveraged today than we were pre-COVID. I mean, the government indebtedness is now over 100% of GDP, and I think the, uh, that's why this backup in yields in the long end of the Treasury curve, I think is more about supply of treasuries this year and for the next number of years and who's going to buy those treasuries than it is about strength in the economy. And I think that's a structural uh, development that's worth watching closely. Uh, Robert, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, I guess now, Jay Powell at Jackson Hole gave a speech that gave a lot of credit, reminded us of Alan Greenspan in the 90s, his willingness to allow the productivity growth of the economy uh, to essentially help him set uh, monetary policy and, and sort of give the economy more room to grow faster than maybe it otherwise would have. Is that relevant right now? We're talking about AI, what it's going to mean for the potential for productivity growth? Yeah, it's, it's relevant, and you'd like to believe, and I'd like to believe, that AI and technology will lead to more productivity. We've got slowing workforce growth. We need more productivity. The issue is our educational attainment needs to be uh, improved in that uh, early childhood literacy scores, our educational attainment scores are lagging the rest of the world, and post-COVID, they've they've deteriorated a little bit more. If we're going to take advantage of this AI revolution, I think we need to be focused a lot more on proving educational attainment because, yes, productivity improvement would certainly help with better GDP growth and also with fighting inflation. Robert, our thanks to you on an important day. Really appreciate it. Good to see you. Good to talk with you. Thanks so much. When we come back, uh, the moment of truth, Fed Chair Powell's speech at Jackson Hole. Don't go anywhere. You've been listening to the opening hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. All opinions expressed by the Squawk on the Street participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information Squawk on the Street participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Squawk on the Street disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Squawk on the Street disclaimer. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.